baptism. Biblically, systematically, get kind of a whole picture of what this is that we just saw and why it is even that we do it the way that we do it here. And so you'll be examining much scripture today as we look at baptism. Okay, so let's first pause and pray. Father God, great grace and mercy have been bestowed out of your riches in it to those whom you have called, whom you have justified, and whom you will glorify. And so, Lord, let us look at this, meditate on this, and envision the gospel with the picture that you gave us. Lord, we need understanding. We need help. We need, Lord, if we're to have any hope in this world and beyond, we need you to reveal to us your riches in grace and mercy in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. And so may you be glorified in the things that we look at. May we be edified. May your lost sheep be called. Lord, may we leave here reveling and enjoying and being filled with all hope of all glory because of what you have done. The fact that you give numerous thoughts to us is incomprehensible. It's magnificent. It's undeserved. But Lord, we trust and we have peace because you do things like that towards sinners. You love us. So make that known today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you saw those wonderful shirts that uh, Brenda Ashcraft made us, we chose to put on the front, From Death to Life, which comes from Ephesians 2.5, which we'll look at at the end of our time here this morning. But that's Simply put, what we're signifying in the act, in the mode of baptism. There are several ways that a church makes the gospel visible, like actually, tangibly able to be seen. And one of those ways is through baptism. You see, signified in those waters, people going under in this watery grave, per se, and and signifying that they have died. Not actually, physically yet, that is to come for everybody, but they've died in the sense that who they were by nature as children of wrath has been buried with Jesus as he took that wrath on himself and died. Then when they come out of the water, that signifies the newness of life that they walk in, that resurrection glory, that hope that is to come. And that's why I asked them that question Do you trust Jesus to be with you as you walk in newness of life? Because if he's not, then there is no newness of life. There is no power over the things that still haunt us and ail us and trouble us. But if Jesus is alive, then we're alive. In in a completely different sense than when you're first born. This is this second birth, this, this being born to this new life. You have a 
new hearts. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that we're new creations. And that's what these people were telling you this morning. They were publicly identifying their allegiance to be to Jesus and their trust to be in him. That is the way that we publicly proclaim who we are in him is through baptism. So I want to go through the scriptures and I want to look at this because a lot of of what we know or hear about baptism can get messed up um, and can make it something that it's not. Sometimes a church can even rob Jesus of the glory in the gospel by making baptism something other than it is. Okay, But I'll also have you know two things to start out. We here in this church do not believe that baptism saves you, that you are saved or should be saved before you ever enter those waters. It's a symbolic act of your salvation. All right. And number two, that baptism is necessary still. So even though it doesn't save you, to obey the commands of Jesus or for him to give a command is to mean that we obey it, period. So we believe that baptism does not save you, but it is necessary. And to fulfill all obedience and all righteousness, you must be baptized. But if you're not, for whatever reason, like the thief on the cross, you're still saved if Jesus has saved you. Okay? So, let's begin to look at this. The first place I want to look at is discussing, especially from the New Testament, even though at the beginning of the New Testament we have the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was doing this very thing. He was baptizing people, which literally in the Greek, baptizo means to immerse. Okay? People throughout the centuries, throughout history, especially as the Catholic Church hijacked the uh, word of God and made people believe that baptism was something that it's not, uh, the, the way that they expressed that was through sprinkling, especially sprinkling infants. When people recaptured the text for themselves and began to investigate it and dig into it, they found out not only through the, the meaning of the word, but through the actual pictures that we have in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts and with John the Baptist, that baptism is by immersion for the simple fact that it gives more of a poignant picture of what it means to die and be buried, doesn't it? If I sprinkle somebody, that's almost like having a water fight. But if I put somebody under the water... That's like putting them in the grave. And we have to see that. We have to see the gospel made visible. And so John the Baptist, being the last, what I would call Old Testament prophet, speaks here in his first encounters of who he is and what he's doing, right? So we kind of follow suit. We call ourselves Baptist simply because we believe that born-again people need to be immersed, fully covered, to point out how they have fully died in Christ with a death like his. So in, in John chapter 1, starting in verse 23, John the Baptist identifies himself in this way, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, 
as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then if you look at this same scene in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse 11 Uh, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what John is communicating is this. He is fulfilling what his role is as the one that Isaiah talks about, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what is that voice crying? Make straight the way of the Lord which means prepare the way. And how do you prepare the way for Jesus to do the work in your heart? Well, what's he baptizing for? He's baptizing them with water for repentance. He's he's helping people to acknowledge their need to be forgiven. He's asking people to acknowledge that they are sinners, which is a very difficult thing, especially in this point in time, for the religious elite to do. We're not sinners. We obey the law. We follow it perfectly. And as a matter of fact, on the outside, they did. So much so that they even added to it, which is a bad thing. But they did. They didn't recognize their need for repentance. And so the, one, the way that he is making or preparing the way for the Lord to come is by helping people acknowledge that they need a Savior. One of the major, most important, crucial parts of the gospel is to understand that you are a sinner and that that means certain things. And that by implication of you being a sinner in light of the fact that a holy God exists and he's righteous and he judges righteously, then if he judges you righteously as guilty, then you should be sentenced to death. There's no hope for you. Except... He is constantly, throughout the scriptures, asking people to recognize and to cry out to him for cleansing. Even in the law, the law points out that even people that come down with leprosy or make themselves unclean in some way are not made clean until their sins are atoned for, till the Lord pardons them, till the Lord forgives them, till the Lord appeases his own wrath for their sin by placing it on something else. That happens In the beginning of this Bible, for the simple fact that he is trying to teach people what it means to recognize who they are and who he is, not only that he's a righteous judge, but that he's a merciful God. So that's how John is preparing the way. And notice, notice that he says, look, what I'm doing, it has to be done, it has to be understood. It has to be acknowledged by each and every person who who comes here to signify that, yeah, I'm a sinner. They're proclaiming that by John's baptism. But listen, somebody's coming, John says, a baptism that you need by the Holy Spirit. So that's the one we're focused on. That's the one we need. If if it were the case that, that water immersion is what saved you, then this tub would stay full every day. 
and there'd be a line around the block because if it was that easy, get in this tap water from the city of Holt and you'll be clean, well, then why would anybody jump in? But that's not what this is. We need baptism from Jesus. We need salvation from him. You know, there's an appeal for cleansing that John is asking for. He's asking people to make this appeal to God for cleansing. We'll read about that after a while in 1 Peter 3. But, but if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, you read these things. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. So God is talking. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now here's the key verses here. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." God is talking about the new covenant that is to come when he makes us clean. This is not literal water that he's talking about. This is a literal cleansing of heart because you look at verse 26 and it tells us that's what he's doing. New heart, new spirit within you. You have a heart of stone because you're dead in your sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2. But I'm going to make you alive. I will. Do you notice how at the beginning of that passage I read in Ezekiel, God is concerned with how they've profaned his holy name. And he's going to vindicate his name by what he does to his people. So when he's talking, the imperative is in him doing the thing that needs to be done. And listen, when he puts his spirit within them, what's that cause them to do? It causes them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Obedience and holiness does not come apart from the power of God. We've displayed what we can produce in our own power. And that is sin. And that needs to die. If we are to live with a holy God, then we therefore must be holy. And we can't do that unless he makes that possible. And then as a result of that, of what all he's done, verse 28, we're going to dwell in this land. And we're going to be with him, and he'll be our God, and we'll be his people. God will have a holy people. He's holy. He will not settle for less. He will bring judgment on the wicked. Therefore, if anyone's going to live with him forever, they're going to be righteous. And he's going to make sure that that happens. Because only he can. And only he will. I've already talked about Isaiah 40, verse 3, how John is that voice that's preparing that way, identifying sin, the need for repentance, uh, appealing 
for the cleansing that he's promised, the new heart, the new spirit in Ezekiel 36. Therefore, what becomes of these people? Jesus came and said to them after his resurrection, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So those who repent of their sin and believe in the provision that God has made to cleanse them from unrighteousness and to make them righteous, those who repent and believe in that will declare death to sin, which is repentance, and allegiance and trust in Christ, which is belief. So at the beginning of Acts, after the Spirit has been given to all those who have been following Christ, uh, and people begin to believe this gospel message, they uh, are instructed to be saved by repenting and believing. That's it. Now, I believe that God must grant them repentance. And therefore, they will have subsequent faith because of how they feel their need to repent. So that's kind of the gospel formula. That's why we end up getting baptized. Being buried under the water declares a repentance that we have, not just one time, but ongoing. We recognize who we are. And our getting up means that we believe. We believe there is life and only in Christ's name. And only on behalf of his power. And we are Baptist here at the First Baptist Church of Holt because this is a command for us that makes the gospel visible. We're not Baptist here because we give money to the Southern Baptist Convention. We're Baptist here because of the Bible. That's it. So what is biblical baptism? What's it look like? How's it done? What's it for? Well, if you look at John 1.33, I myself did not know him, John says, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Biblical baptism is first and foremost done by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? It means he cleanses us, he pardons us from our sin and guilt, he replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, he gives us his righteousness that he lived in perfectly every single day of his human life, and he promises us, as we already read in Matthew 28, to be with us so that we're able to obey the commands he's given us. He does that by his Holy Spirit. So if his Holy Spirit is in somebody, they are his. They've been baptized by him. The Holy Spirit doesn't get there without that. We have to have the baptism of Jesus. I can't baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with nice warm water. But Jesus has to do something completely on another level. If you read through Acts, you will begin to understand baptism, pure and simple. And let me just riddle off the scriptures in Acts, right, that you see baptism played out. And when you investigate these things, these these instances when people were first baptized, you're going to recognize something. They believed first and foremost and repented before baptism ever took place. 
Acts 2.41, Acts 8.12 and 13, Acts 8.36 through 39, Acts 9.18, Acts 10.47 through 48, Acts 16.14 through 15, and 31 through 34, and Acts 18.8. If you want a list of those afterwards, I can give them to you, but they are wonderful, awesome occurrences of when biblical baptism should take place. And I would argue only after the baptism that Jesus gives. Now, one question that always comes up with baptism is we're talking about biblical baptism is does it save? Right. And I want to squash that idea because I think that idea says that I contribute to my salvation. And what we read from Ezekiel 36 and what we read from John the Baptist, it seems to be that Jesus is the only one who can save. And certainly that's what the apostles are proclaiming in Acts, is that, listen, you need Jesus. Now, I want to look at this passage. It's troubling at first, but as we begin to investigate it, it's really not that bad. 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. Because they did formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an, as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, that appears that Peter may be saying that baptism saves you. But notice what he is saying. He's talking about baptism corresponding to how the ark saved Noah and his family in the days of judgment that God brought upon the earth with water. And he even says in verse 21, baptism not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay, that's what happens when you just simply put somebody in water. Dirt comes off. No, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are, we are presenting ourselves as those in need of reconciliation to God by the forgiveness of our sins, and that is only done and won through the resurrection of Jesus Christ after he died on the cross for our sins. So we present ourselves in that way through what? Repentance. And we signify that in the water, going under, even being there, showing up and saying, look, I needed God to cleanse me. Or I'm not clean. And then through the resurrection of Jesus, we now walk and live and have hope and have cleanliness and righteousness and holiness. If you meditate on the ark for a second, okay, God is doing two things at one time, just like he's doing when he saves us or on the cross of Jesus. At that point in time, he is bringing his judgment for sin and wickedness in men's hearts. And at the same time, giving mercy and grace to Noah and his family by putting them in this ark and carrying them through his judgment waters. How does that signify what Jesus does? Jesus is on the cross at one point in time, both receiving the just punishment for sin, our sin, not his, 
and at the same time saving us as he took the wrath for sin and delivers us through his righteousness that he lived in and that he won and the inheritance which is surely to come and be his is now shared with those whom he has died for. So he carries us through God's judgment. We are hidden in him. We are saved through his blood. His opening of his flesh allows us to come in and to be in his righteousness, that pure righteous blood that's spilt, that pure righteous flesh that is ripped open allows us to go into the holy place. What's the holy place? Jesus. What's the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, if you've ever heard about that, that has a curtain that separates the, the holy uh, place from the holy of holies? We can't, as unclean people, get back there or we'll die. But if we go back there as righteous, pure people, we'll live with God. And so when Jesus is crucified, that veil, the literal veil in the temple is torn in two. Why? Because we now come in. He's brought us safely through the judgment of God that was due our sin. Brought us into his righteousness. It's amazing. All of the Bible points to this reality. For thousands of years, God has been trying to tell people and get our attention. No, he's been trying. He has been telling people and getting our attention that Not only is he righteous and holy, but he's merciful and gracious to his enemies. Enemies. So how are we saved? Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that language? Washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's how he saved us. According to his own mercy, his own washing, his own regeneration, pouring out on us through Jesus, his grace, so that we become heirs of God. We think of all the wealthy people in the world and we think, man, wouldn't it be good to inherit from them? Well, what would it be like to inherit from God? Magnify whatever you're thinking by infinity and then you'll understand. Complete peace. Utter and indescribable glory. Eternal, unending life. Life that is not hindered or tainted by sin or the flesh or enemies, but is in complete and utter perfection and glory. You think about that and you realize very quickly, I can't imagine what it is to exist in that way. And you're right. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And he said, why do you keep sharing these verses? It sounds like it says baptism saves you. Well, read the verse. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say whoever does not believe and is baptized will be condemned. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. You must be baptized. I won't argue that 
any day of the week. But I will say that that's not what saves you. You will be baptized. Surely if there is any opportunity to be baptized and you have been saved, you will be baptized. But you won't be condemned because you're not, especially if it's not possible for you to be baptized. Belief, faith, not having that and what God has provided through Jesus is what condemns you. The only unforgivable sin, Jesus says, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit's job? To make known to us what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. And so by not believing when the Holy Spirit speaks about what Jesus has done and said is the only unforgivable sin. Everything else will be pardoned. Even those who have spoken against the Son of God. Even those who have murdered and raped, and stolen, they can be forgiven. But if the Holy Spirit comes and speaks the gospel as to how that's possible to them, and they don't believe, that's how you're destroyed, both body and soul in hell, by God. So Acts 16, 30-31, maybe you have this question. Sirs, What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. You know what happens? This is a scene with this jailer, right? And uh, by God's omnipotent, sovereign power, he unlocks the jail cells. And Paul and his uh, comrades, they're able to go free. God opened the door. But Paul stands there. Back in this time, uh, jailers lived in the jail. Their families lived with them in the jail. They watched their um, inmates day and night. And if they are to lose one of them, they lose their life. Pure and simple. So the punishment is severe. And Paul stands there and he proclaims the gospel and how this took place to this jailer. And it leaves the jailer to say, well, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. And he, and he also gives this prophetic word, you and your household. You know what happens after this? Surely as this whole family is there, they're witnessing this scene, there's a great commotion. They hear Paul and it says that Paul explains to them <clears throat> the things of God, the gospel And then after they all have received the word, they're all saved and they all get baptized. And then all the inmates are still there the next morning. And the the jailer and his family are new people, new creations. And surely you can infer that after that, what did they live doing? Maybe he stayed as a jailer and proclaimed the gospel to all those inmates that came through his house. That's what you must do to be saved. Now I want to look at Romans 5 and 6, just briefly. Romans 5 and 6 present to us what life is like for those who have believed in Christ, for those who have signified repentance and belief through baptism. Chapter 5 talks about how we have peace through faith. 
verses 6 through 10, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know what that means? The weak here is the morally weak. The people unable to do the right thing. Not enough strength to do the right thing. And Christ dies for those who do not fear or acknowledge God as God. They're morally incapable of doing so. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And it goes on to explain how in Jesus we receive righteousness and life and how in Adam mankind received death and condemnation. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's a bummer. We all get mad at Adam like, come on, man. Really? Look what happened. I'm this way because of you. Well, if you want to point the finger and play the blame game, um, you can't do that too long because something else has happened from one man to the rest of men who believe. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay. Well, that's a good remedy. If through Adam's disobedience were made sinners, through Jesus, him alone, one man acting righteous, we become righteous. You don't think you deserved what came through Adam. Well, you definitely don't deserve what came through Jesus. But he did it on behalf of all men. Romans 6, 1 through 7. So what do we do now? What do we do? If this is the reality, if we've understood this, if we believe this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Your Bible should have an exclamation point after that. By no means. Emphatic. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might be walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The picture here is simply this. Your old master was your flesh, which reigned over you in sin, which causes death. Okay, the, the, the wages for serving that master is that you die. That's what he paid you. But if you have put to death or if Jesus has put to death on the cross, your old self, that old master then why would you try and go back and serve him? No, you serve a new master. He paid for you. He bought you. He reigns over you. So you've been set free from sin. And what's what's the wages of this new master? Well, verse 23 of chapter 6, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And you can read about eternal life through the 
letters of Paul and Peter and John and certainly in the book of Revelation. You, you know what he pays. But you didn't do anything to earn it. That's why it says in verse 23, it's a free gift. There's nothing you could do to serve him well enough to earn that type of pay. But Jesus did. That's why it says at the end of verse 23, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift, eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord, our master. The one who reigns over us now. So, Let's summarize it. What's happened? What's happened to these people that have been baptized? What's happened to maybe you or the brothers and sisters in this room? What's happened to these people that you hear talking about Jesus all the time? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We go from being under the water, dead, to coming out of the water, life. From death to life. That's where we go if we repent and believe. That's the good news. And if you have heard the Holy Spirit speak the gospel to you, that good news, then you should respond. Today is the day of salvation. And Lord, I don't know if I have it up there, but we have a baptism page on our website where you can listen to a teacher far greater than me explain to you what baptism is. There it is, Uh, Alistair Begg. You can read a little synopsis of what it is, and you can tell us that you're interested in these things. Simply telling us that, that I think Jesus died for me, and I needed him to. And that's how you can tell us. Or you can approach me after the service. You can approach one of these brothers and sisters. You can approach those that have been baptized, and they can tell you where to find life. And it's only in Jesus. So I pray now that you would be renewed in your faith by meditating on the things of the gospel or that you would receive life from God's mercy in the gospel. And after you've had time to do that, we're going to stand and sing.